Good morning. Would you please pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. Father, we confess immediately that we are weak and in need. In need of you and your grace and your mercy. Lord, of your sovereign hand to work within our midst so that we might be drawn up to behold you in your glory. Father, left to ourselves and outside of your grace, we are consumed with the stirrings and murmurings of our own sinful hearts and minds. Lord, we are sinners in need of Christ. Father, we pray that you would apply to us Christ this morning by your word. And Father, we confess that we are thirsty for your word. Lord, we pray that you would, by your spirit, make your living an act of word to pierce our hearts and fill us and feed us and nourish us. Lord, that you would convict us of sin, but encourage us in faithfulness. And Father, would you, by your word and through my preaching of your word, speak to us. Father, may we hear your word clearly, effectively. Lord, we pray that you would glorify yourself through this. Use me, Lord, despite my failures, but only for your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name, the King of glory. Amen. Why have we just sung songs about God, sang collectively to God, Why do we gather together on Sunday mornings to bow our heads silently, praying, muttering things to God? Why do we say things like, I believe in the Trinity, the triunity of God. I believe in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Why do we speak about our common hope and the return of Jesus Christ? A man who lived 2,000 years ago and we claim even lives now as we speak. Where do we get these ideas from? Ideas which, if we're to be honest, are a bit strange and not at all easily understandable. Moreover, where do we get the idea of God from? Of believing in Him? Of being here on a Sunday morning to sing about Him and to sing to Him? It's noteworthy, isn't it, that every culture throughout human history has believed in a higher being? A God or many gods? a life spirit, or the natural order around us as divine mother nature? Of course, atheists have always been around, but never as a dominant cultural belief or denial of any belief. Atheists throughout history have tended to be individuals or at least small minority of people within a larger believing culture. But humanity as a whole has tended toward believing in a God. This is where it gets messy. Though we have this understanding that there is a creator, a God, or gods, it's our approach to that God that looks very different among different people. It's where our word religion comes from. Religion, the combination of the two Latin words, re ligare, which means to reconnect. Mankind has, from the very beginning, tried to be reconnecting with the creator. And how? Some people approach the divine by lifelong meditation in an attempt to transcend self and suffering, quieting the inner soul. 
Some people approach and worship the gods through sex. Many peoples around the world have decided that hallucinogenic drugs is the answer. Mushrooms, marijuana, peyote. All this to get high, which gives you access and connection to the divine. Perhaps the most shocking way, and not at all uncommon, is where people have tried to reconnect with God or worship the gods through sacrifice. And notably, human sacrifice. The killing and offering of children, slaves, or anyone really. It's throughout the Old Testament. Many people today think that we can reconnect with God through being nice doing some community service projects here and there. Maybe you think that. Perhaps you just assume that in the end, we all kind of get a free pass to reconnect with God and lost loved ones. I mean, why not? The ultimate question is why? Where do we get our ideas from in how we reconnect or approach the divine? With who this divine God is? In essence... As long as God or the gods remain silent, our attempts at worship are nothing but a big guessing game. And dare I say, guessing at who God is and what God wants is the height of folly. This is where our sermon passage comes in this morning, a passage which reveals to us that God has not remained silent. That God has revealed himself is revealing himself, and has given us clear and sufficient knowledge of who he is and what he's doing to reconnect with us. So that when Christians say, I believe, we do so not based on what we've come up with and what we've thought to be most pragmatic or efficient, but based on what God has revealed. Let's read our text, Psalm 19. Psalm 19, to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving His chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Psalm 19 stands out within the Bible as one of the clearest expressions, at least I think, on what the Bible is all about. 
In other words, Christians don't believe the Bible is God's word because we as Christians and as the church give the Bible that authority. Now, we believe the Bible is God's word because the Bible, as God's word, says of itself that it's God's authoritative word. It attests to itself. I don't come to an orange and say, you're an orange and I'll eat you. You bite into it and you say, this is an orange. And when you bite into the true goodness of God's word, you can't help but say, there's authority here. This is God speaking. Psalm 19 is just one of these passages that shows us this truth. The passage is easily broken down into three main sections, each section dealing with how God speaks to us. So that's going to be the outline for my sermon this morning. If you look down, the first section is seen in verses 1 through 6, where we see God speak to us in or by the heavens. The second section is verses 7 through 11. This is where God speaks to us in his inscripturated word, the Bible. The third section, verses 12 through 14, is where God speaks to us through our consciences. Others have described these three sections as the three books with which we can know God. The book of creation, the book of his word, and the book of our own hearts and consciences. Each of these books are connected, and in each of these books we have sufficient knowledge of who God is. But we need to see the different ways in which they reveal God to us. So let's look at each section here more closely. The first section we see God revealing himself to us through creation. Look at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. There's a number of things to see about this. First, David, who's the author of this psalm, is focusing his eyes Upward and outward. If you could see what I'm looking at right now, maybe something like that. It's a beautiful array of green summer trees. And David is looking up toward the heavens. This isn't to say that other things in nature don't proclaim the glory of God, like the ocean or the mountains or trees and rivers and animals. They do. Everything that God has created bears his fingerprints and thus tells us something about God. But what David is doing is grabbing one part of this entire creation, the sky, and he's highlighting it here. The skies during the day, the expanse we see at night. I think he focuses on the skies and the heavens here because of how vast it is, how staggering the immensity of it is. Remember as a kid... Hopefully you still do it now as an adult where you stare up into the night sky in the summer away from the city lights and look at all the stars and say, wow, it's endless. What he tells us is this, that when we do that, when we look at God's creation, God's creation is telling us something. See those two verbs in verse 1? The heavens declare. The sky above declares proclaims. And David's saying that everyone sees this declaration. In verses 4, 5, and 6, David says that everyone, wherever they live, can see it and is captivated by it. There is no one hidden from the heat of its message. Everyone can see the glory of God in creation, just like everyone who's at a wedding sees the joy of the bridegroom reflecting the beauty of his bride. Do you do that? When the bride comes in, you peek back at the groom, and he's smiling in reflection of the bride, and everyone's eyes 
are focused on these two figures. That's what David is saying about us. We all see the beauty of God's glory in creation. Look what verse 3 tells us. There's no actual words coming from creation. There's no speech. There are no words. But nonetheless, God's creative work says something. We know how this works, right? A husband comes home from work upon seeing his wife and says, Hey, honey, how was your day? The wife answers, It was fine. But the astute husband notices her body language is communicating something completely different. He knows her day wasn't fine because her mannerisms are declaring and proclaiming something completely different from the words that came out of her mouth. In fact, if the husband isn't a Neanderthal, the nonverbal communication is going to speak way more loudly than the verbal. I think that's something of what David is saying here. It's interesting, I was meeting with Mike last night, and we're going through this text and talking about it, and I brought up this analogy of the nonverbal communication, and as soon as I did, the storm that was rolling through, lightning seemed to hit right in my backyard, and we both stopped and stuttered right there. And Mike kind of later said, that's a good analogy, but that lightning strike right next to us was way louder and clearer, and he's right. The nonverbal, voiceless communication of God that we heard in that thunderstorm last night speaks powerfully of the mighty, powerful, sovereign God that we serve. The created world around us, everything that is, all that happens is constantly communicating something. Look at verse 2. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. And what's it declaring? Well, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Do you see that? All creation is God-centered. God's created order is constantly speaking about the glory and the creativity of our one true living God. Day after day, night after night. And you know what? This communication isn't the wasted talking of those friends who just can't stop talking, and who throw around words without thought, and on and on, and wop, 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 they go. No, God's word never returns void. God's revelation of himself is never wasted speech. All creation is continually in the declarative mood, preaching to all people the glory and the goodness of God. And friends, it's always a perfect sermon. Listen to how the Apostle Paul thinks about this in Romans chapter 1. He says, What can be known about God is plain to all people, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So then all people are without excuse. You see that? The created world around us plainly shows us not only that there is a God, and by the way, this is why all cultures and peoples throughout history have been religious and have sought to worship this God. The created order also shows us plainly what this God is like. Namely, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature. Only an eternally existent and powerfully divine God can come up with all that we see around us. And we experience this without thinking about it all the time. 
When you walk up to a painting hanging on a wall, you have two thoughts go through your head almost instantaneously without thinking about it. The first thought is this, oh, here's a painting of a flower. You don't say, hmm, has this flower that I see on this canvas, which is hanging on this wall, always been here? Did it just come into existence randomly? No. You know intuitively that this flower was painted by a painter. Someone creatively created this beautiful picture. The second thought you have is one of value. You next immediately ask, is this a good painting or a not good painting? You place a value on the picture which tells you something about the artist. Ah, here's a master artist who's painted this flower. Or, ah, my two-year-old could do that. Paul and David are both telling us that as we look at the world around us, the same two thoughts instantly go through our minds. Ah, here is something that points to a creator, a grand artist. And secondly, wow, what a magnificent artist he is. Would you just look at that sunset? It's surreal. Now, if David is making the point that the created world around us tells us about God, that creation is preaching to us about the glory of God, I can imagine that some people, even here this morning, might be thinking, this artist you speak of seems to me to be very flawed and not as magnificent as you, Paul, or David want to make him out to be. You see a sunset and swoon. Okay. I see a tornado ravish neighborhoods and ask why. I see floods ruining lives and shake my head in disbelief. I I see disease bring death and say, where is God? I see shootings in churches and say, no, there's no meaning or order at all. I don't quite see this grand artist you're speaking of. To those who may be thinking that, the Bible actually gives us a context for why that is. From one perspective... That kind of thinking actually falls in line with who we are as sinners. Paul in the rest of Romans 1 goes on to say this. Although mankind knows God, they do not honor God or give thanks to him. But they've become futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts are actually now darkened. Claiming to be wise, they've become fools. And have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gives them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature themselves rather than the creator. For now, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth, the truth that we all see around us. You see, from one perspective, in our sinfulness, we suppress the truth of what we see about God around us and and exchange that truth, twist that truth, to highlight and give honor and glory to ourselves. That's one reason why we think this way about God when we look at creation. In our sin, we are unable to give glory to Him because we want it for ourselves, which incidentally is exactly what Adam and Eve did and wanted in the Garden of Eden. But it's actually there in the Garden of Eden where we see the other reason for tornadoes 
floods, diseases, and such. As Paul goes on to tell us in Romans 8, the sufferings of this present time are actually not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us in the new creation. For this creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. You see, this creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You see what Paul's saying there? That because of the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, they brought with them corruption, not only to themselves, but to all creation around us. And the world that we see around us, a world which still actually displays and, and still does proclaim the beauty and glory of God, also proclaims eager longing. The created order around us has been subjected to futility so that it too can preach about a better future coming. See what Paul says there? The whole creation is groaning. It's communicating and preaching with heartfelt groans about the glory of God and specifically about how God is redeeming and will in the future restore all things to himself. Death and decay preach to us that God is going to set right the things that are wrong. Yes, that wrath is coming. That judgment is coming. But there's a longing for a new creation to come. So friends, when we see natural disasters, when we see the sufferings of this world, the message isn't, oh, there's no God. And if there is, he can't be all that great. No, the message is that God is doing something and we must look with hope, as even creation is doing now, in anticipation of God's final redemption to come. As we look and contemplate the beauty of the heavens, we can see a creation which displays, communicates, proclaims, and declares the sovereign glory of God and who will right all wrongs. And yet, even an acknowledgement of that can only go so far. Though God's revelation of himself to us in creation is sufficient and good and infallible, we as sinners, as fallen men and women, distort that truth. We suppress it. And on top of that, we only see a glimpse of God and who he is in creation. We don't see all of God because God has not revealed all of himself to us through this world. And so that leads us to the second part of this psalm. Verses 7 through 11, we see God's special revelation of himself in his word. And we see that in the different words David uses to describe the inscripturated word of God. Look there in verse 7. The law of the Lord. Verse 7 again. The testimony of the Lord. In verse 8, the precepts of the Lord and the commandments of the Lord. Look at verse 9, the fear of the Lord. And again in verse 9, the rules of the Lord. See that? Six different ways David uses six different words to describe God's written word. And you know what's so interesting about that? In the first six verses where David talked about the creation revealing God, he used the Hebrew word El, which in our English Bibles is translated to the generic word God, just God. The creative world reveals that there is a God. But in verses 7 through 11, where David is talking about the scriptures, he uses not the word God, but the word Yahweh. 
The personal name of the one true living God. You see that? Every time in your English Bibles where you see the word Lord in all capital letters, behind that is the name Yahweh. God's personal name. That tells us so much right off the bat. We can know that there's a God by looking at creation. But it isn't until God gives us his personal and special revelation of himself in the scriptures that we learn of who this God is. He becomes personal. He's not revealing that he just exists. He's revealing that he's a person, that he has a name, and that he's connecting with us. What kind of God is this? The God who sustains the sun and and all the multitude of stars in the heavens and who is now introducing himself to us, engaging in personal communication with me? Well, what do we see about this special revelation? A few things. Firstly, verse 7, that it's perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. In other words, when you see the beauty of the world around you, you have a clear and sufficient revelation of God. But, but now in Scripture, you have a more sure and perfect revealing of who God is. The Apostle Peter says something very similar in 2 Peter 1, a passage where he, in an astounding way, I think, describes the time when, when he went up with Jesus on the mountain and saw his transfiguration, full glory. And he even heard on that mountain the voice of God from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased in. Friends, that's a wild experience. I've never been there or experienced that. But I'd be like Peter in that passage, cowering and saying, what do I do? You see Jesus, you hear God's voice. But then Peter says this, we actually have something far better and more sure. The prophetic writings of scripture. The word of God written down and inspired for us by the Holy Spirit. That's amazing to me. What we have in our Bible is more sure than any experience we could ever have of actually seeing Jesus face to face and hearing a voice from heaven. This is more sure. Part of the reason for that is what David says next. The law of the Lord is perfect because it revives the soul. You see the connection? It's God's perfect word, yes, because it's without error, it's infallible, that's important. But more so because it has an effect upon us. Like Peter said, it's more sure and therefore we should give our fullest attention to it. Actually, Paul makes this connection in what Mike read earlier in Romans chapter 10. Where Paul asks the question, how do people come to believe in Jesus Christ? Paul's been spending chapters actually explaining that we're all dead in sin. And that is, we're unable to come to any saving faith by our own ability and power. We can't put our saving faith in Jesus any more than a corpse can climb out of the grave. So Paul asks, if that's true, how do we believe? And in Romans 10, 17, he answers by saying, faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. In other words, the scriptures are perfect, reviving the soul. Left to ourselves, we're spiritually dead as Lazarus, rotting away in our own spiritual tombs until the word of God comes to us in power, perfectly and in Christ. And Christ, through his spirit-inspired word, says, Lazarus, awake, get up. And through that we breathe. 
Through that, we come to new life and are born again. And we can't help but put our faith in Christ through the reviving of the word that he's spoken to us. You know how the great theologian St. Augustine came to saving faith? He read Romans 13, 14. It says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He read that, and there his heart was revived, and he was saved. Changed the world. Do you know the story of how the great reformer Martin Luther came to faith? He was meditating on Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And through reading that, his heart was brought to life to put his faith in Christ alone. The word powerfully did the work, revived his soul. He was saved and changed the world. Friends, I wonder if this is your understanding of God's word. Do you see it as perfect? Able to revive you and give you life? Do you have a Bible? If you don't, we have free ones out in the lobby. Get one. I plead with you. Read it. Pray to God that its perfect content would have its full effect upon your heart and bring spiritual revival to your soul. If you've never read the Bible, and I mean sit down to give your full attention to it, Do so. Decide today. Resolve that you will give yourself to the life-reviving power of God's holy word. It's life to us. And how foolish we are to give our time to other trivial things. I've been convicted this week as I've been meditating on this, how I wake up instantly and go to my iPhone. Oh no, I need to go to the word. Drink deeply from it. Find your deepest satisfaction in its content. Christ reminds us, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is where we find true spiritual life. What are the effects of this life-giving word? Look at what David says. The word not only revives us, but it gives us wisdom. That is, in a world shattered by sin, where the public and, and common conscience is guided, or rather misguided, by sin, where what is wrong is now championed as right, where perverse things are enjoyed as entertainment, and where good and right things are many times pushed to the sidelines as boring, prudish. In this kind of world, it's God's word that gives us wisdom, insight on how to live and think rightly. The scriptures inform our worldview and gives us something solid to base our convictions on. This is what David says down in verse 11. That by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Not only does God's word give us wisdom, but they also rejoice the heart. Look down at verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And why shouldn't it? It's God's very word to us. We who deserve nothing but the just wrath of God who deserve complete silence and separation and a righteous cold shoulder from God. Instead, he's written to us a perfect letter of love where the words themselves glow with life and reveal to us his will and plan of redemption. What joy that should give the true child of God. You know what? That's one of the marks of the true Christian, a delight and an enjoyment in God's word. You can't get enough of it. 
You love it. In fact, that's how David describes it in verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The relationship between a Christian and the Bible is like that between a child and his favorite ice cream sundae. It's pure joy. And again, here's why. Because it's God's word. It's God's word. You can't claim to love God and yet have a total disdain for his word. I love my wife. And you know how you know I love my wife? I listen to her. I want to get to know her more and more. I think about and I'm concerned about what she's thinking all the time. What does she enjoy? I want to enjoy that. What does she hate? I need to know that so so that I can enjoy her more. Her enjoyment is my enjoyment. And I only can truly enjoy her when I know her more and more. Friends, that's true love. Is there a duty to my relationship with my wife? Absolutely. But that duty is fueled by enjoyment. Friends, do you love God? Does your Bible show evidence that you love God? Is it worn in, marked up with notes? If you turn to my favorite passage in this Bible, it's smudged up. I've got to go to other Bibles now to read it because I'm always there. What does David say the result of knowing God's word is? It's in this last section of Psalm 19. The result is that we become acutely aware of our standing before God in our hearts. In other words, this is the book of our consciences. Look how David describes this in verses 12 and 13. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. You see what David's saying? Is that as he comes to know God through creation, but even more so as he comes to know God through his word, he becomes conscious of the fact that he's a sinner. In fact, it begins with a profound question. Who can discern his errors? As the scriptures revive David, give wisdom and joy to David, but also give fear to David, making known God's righteous rules, David becomes more and more aware that his heart actually can't keep up with what he's reading. He reads God's laws. They're perfect, right, pure, clean, and true. But as he stands before them, his life evidences the fact that he himself is fallen, sinful, prone to wander, and full of error. The prophet Jeremiah says the same thing. Jeremiah chapter 17, he's just spoken about how how good it is to trust in God's word and promises, but then he immediately cries out, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah, like David, as he peers into the perfection of God's word, catches a glimpse of his own spiritual reflection, and it frightens him. He sees his sin. And so this leads David in Psalm 19 to pray out to God, a a prayer that I think and hope that we all ought to pray ourselves. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. You see? My sin is too much for me, Lord. I can't obey you perfectly as your law and your word demand. Uh, My own strength, 
I can't do it. The only way out, Lord, the only way I can be righteous before you is by you declaring me innocent. You must justify me. For I confess, Lord, I can't justify myself. But how, Lord? How? For you're holy. And you have to punish sin because you're holy and good. I think the question we need to ask as we come to an end here is this. What did David have in mind when he wrote this? What was he thinking about? David's Bible was a lot smaller than ours back then. The scriptures that he meditated on were most most likely just the first five books of the Old Testament. The Torah, the law. Seems to me that as he read and he saw the law of God, he also saw as he read through Genesis, Exodus, how God was doing something else. He's redeeming sinners. He was probably reading and thinking about how God covered the sins of Adam and Eve by shedding the blood of an animal. He's probably reading and thinking about how God declared Abraham to be righteous because he simply believed God. He's probably reading and thinking about the promise God made to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 about a future son who would be born and who would defeat Satan and return God's people to a sinless paradise. David, it seems, was looking for a redeemer. His Bible didn't have a name yet for this coming son who would redeem. But David knew God would redeem through him, whoever he was. This is why he prays at the end, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He's meditating on God's promises and knows somehow God will redeem. Friends, we have God's completed word on who this Redeemer is. The author of Hebrews reminds us beautifully that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the, by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. And after making purification for sins, dying in our place, He rose again and ascended, And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Redemption is finished. Friends, God's word became flesh. God's word became for us our sure and perfect redeemer. We have now in the gospels that sure and perfect word which gives us the good news of the salvation we can have in him. In Christ, we can have his righteousness. In Christ... God can declare us righteous. In Christ, we can be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. The book of Hebrews ends with this warning. See that you do not refuse him, Christ, who is speaking. God speaks to us perfectly from his word. And as that word stirs within your conscience, I pray that it revives your soul And it brings you to a saving knowledge and more and more an enjoyment in our Lord Jesus Christ.